Hi there, this is Dr. Nasha Winters, and today we'll be mapping mistletoe on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Nasha Winters. Dr. Nasha Winters is a global healthcare authority and best-selling author in integrative cancer care and research consulting with physicians around the world. She has educated hundreds of professionals in the clinical use of mistletoe and has created robust educational programs for both healthcare institutions and the public on incorporating vetted integrative therapies in cancer care to enhance outcomes. Dr. Nasha is currently focused on opening a comprehensive metabolic oncology hospital and research institute in the U.S. where the best that standard of care has to offer and the most advanced integrative therapies will be offered. This facility will be in a residential setting on a gorgeous campus against a backdrop of regenerative farming, EMF mitigation, and retreat. Dr. Nasha, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Oh my gosh, such a joy to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. Thank you. I'm super excited to talk with you about mistletoe because I have such a personal connection to it with my husband's cancer care back in the early 2000s, but it's not really an easy topic to discuss. Dr. Nisha, can you start us out by just explaining what mistletoe is within the context of integrative cancer care? Absolutely. This amazing plant that we've co-evolved with since the beginning of time has actually got a long track record, even all the way back to Hippocrates and before as a medicine that was very helpful for the spleen, which means everything with relationship to building of our bone marrow and new immune cells. So we've known for literally thousands of years that it had some implications in our immune system. We also known for thousands of years, it has some support in pain management, as well as support for things like epilepsy, which is where it had been widely used in West Western herbology. Fast forward to a very interesting philosophical fella by the name of Rudolf Steiner. Many of you know, including you, um, yes. <laughs> maybe like the Waldorf School Education, Permaculture, Anthroposophical Medicine. These all rose from this man's philosophical teachings. And mistletoe was something that he observed in nature back in the early 1900s as something that looked this concept of doctrine of signatures. He would see these plants growing in these trees and they somehow looked like tumors to him, which made him curious to think, well, maybe they're good for cancer. Fast forward, we just celebrated in 2021, the 100-year anniversary of mistletoe extract used 
consistently for the past hundred years as an injection in the treatment of and support of people dealing with cancer. So it has a nice long track record as far as medicine goes, both from sort of its more esoteric herbal underpinnings to its more medicalized, where they took extracts of it and put it into a a very particular laboratory environment and tested out and made sure it has the exact constituents that you want for each and every dose, how it's been used now for the last hundred years. So that's what's really cool is it now is considered the most studied integrative oncology treatment in the world. It is part of the medical repertory of all other countries in the world outside of the United States. We're working hard to change thanks to a clinical trial that's gone through phase one at Hopkins for IV applications, but it really has thousands of studies worldwide on its use in the oncology world. So it's got a great track record. It's not woo-woo, it's not esoteric, and it's quite well characterized and quite underutilized in the United States. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Dr. Nisha, because when I was looking into it, when it was suggested to us and we did work with an anthroposophical doctor on top of all the other doctors we were working with in order to get the mistletoe, which if I understand is also called Iskador. Yeah. Is that right? Do I have the it's name right? It's one of the brands. That's one of the brands of oh, it. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So most of the research at that time, and again, this is about 20 years ago or so, was coming out of Germany. Is it used more in Europe as part of integrative cancer? I mean, cancer care is more integrative (laughs) just by nature in certain parts of Europe, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so to your point, it started becoming utilized pretty much If you are a patient diagnosed with cancer 20 years ago in Europe, you had an 80 to 85% chance of using this medication somewhere during your cancer journey. Okay. It was never considered an alternative or used instead of, it was used in addition to chemo, radiation, surgery, et cetera. If you were a general inhabitant of Europe in general, you had about a 60 to 65% chance of utilizing this therapy somewhere along the way. It's lost some of its favor over the last couple of decades, just as sort of the influence of the United States has sort of trickled into other parts of the world. And we've really gone in favor of the high dollar targeted therapy therapies, you know, and hormone blockade therapies and and new inventions of, you know, conventional therapeutic interventions for cancer that we've allowed this sort of to fall by the wayside. It's still very well utilized in Europe, in South America, in India, in North America, as far as Mexico and Canada. It hasn't really lost favor there. In fact, we find that it's really picked up momentum in other parts of the world and starting to pick up momentum in the U.S. So it's almost like we're changing places with our colleagues in the UK and the EU in using it here today. But they were the people doing the research. They are the places where you have some of the, you still have anthroposophical hospitals using this alongside chemo, surgery, targeted therapy, radiation, hormone blockade therapies, you name it. It's still very much indoctrinated into a lot of the hospitals all over Europe and in particular Germany, Austria, Switzerland. 
I really love how you're talking about the integration of different approaches and how they work synergistically, that it's not taking one route or the other. I always say that in functional nutrition, we're working in tandem with other medical interventions. When we're working on medical situations, we're not putting our hands on our hips saying, (laughs) no, 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 you're doing it wrong. We're saying, yes, and we also need to. And I'm going to go back to my crude understanding of mistletoe, and I'm going to ask you to forget give me in advance. <laughs> I'm like, my understanding of what happened when my husband, when we went through determining what extract would be used is it was a process that was almost like, um, I don't know what to equate it to other than a homeopathic intake. Like the doctor, the anthroposophical doctor was determining, is it what type of tree or help me out here. I don't even know how to quantify it. You're doing gorgeously. I mean, to kind of put it into the category. In fact, what you see from the pharmacies in the United States, it's actually labeled as a homeopathic remedy and it's recommended to take it orally for migraines. That's how it's registered in the United States. But just like so many other things in our practices, we can use things off label. So it has always been used as a cancer therapy in an injectable form, be it subcutaneous, be it intratumoral, intrapleural, be it intravenous. That's how it's used because the lectins, the polysaccharides, and the viscotoxins are incredibly volatile in that the moment they hit the air, the moment they hit your mouth, the moment they hit your enzymes, they get broken down. So you lose a lot of the anti-cancer qualities of it. It's not a protocol. So it's not like, oh, you have this cancer, so you take this drug. It's that what's the condition? They call it the anamnestic form. An anamnestic, if you Google that, it's basically a German word that means an evaluation of the immune system of the organism. And so it's helping us understand, like, is that person hyperactive with their immune system? Do they have a tendency towards dermatographia, allergies? Do they have a tendency towards autoimmune conditions? Or are they at the other end, just flat affect, no response, like basically an utter, you know, negative on any type of immune reaction? So it looks at that. It looks at their overall constitution, their overall vital force. It looks at their gender, their age. Are they taking concomitant medications? Are they dealing with other comorbidities? And so much like your functional nutrition matrix, we're looking at the other data inputs, you know, their oxidative stress, their detox pathways, their mind, body, spirit, you know, how vital are those things or how toxic are they? So the medicine is matched to the person. And then the person's response to that medicine will change its course over time. So if the patient stops having a really robust response to the medication or their scans or their labs start to show that they're progressing into their disease, that's when you change the medicine to match the patient. That's very unique in our medical system. We're often like, here's the treatment and you give it to this patient where now we have to understand the patient in order to best make a fit for the treatment. And so mistletoe is no different than that. It is a semi-parasitic plant that has co-evolved with its host, which is the type of tree. We have thousands of species of mistletoe, but we have only a handful that seem to have the type of lectin, polysaccharide, and viscotoxin content that are actually anti-cancer. 
in nature. And they tend to grow in very particular soils. So for me being kind of the terrain expert and you being the mitochondrial expert, that probably resonates to some degree that this region of Europe in the black forest area. So just imagine the microbiome and the terroir that lends itself to this very anti-cancer quality is where these medicines predominantly come from. And there's a variety of different mistletoe companies, one of which is Iskador, which you were clearly familiar with. There's Halixor, there's Iskusen, there's Apnoba, there's a handful of them, but they're all just different companies and manufacturers, but there's different host trees. And the most common host trees are the fir, the pine, the apple, and the oak. Those are what you're going to find are the biggest hosts to these anti-cancer sort of remedies. There's others in the anthroposophical world, but those are the ones that are most commonly used among the population. So we find which sort of tree, which host best matches the patient. And then down to the companies, Iskador, for instance, is a fermented form of mistletoe. So it has a very different sort of behavior in the physiology versus it's just cold water extract of the other companies. So even then the personalities of even the manufacturing process adds another layer into what's helping you have the best fit for the patient or for yourself if you are the patient. So fascinating. There's so many things you said, Dr. Nisha, that I just want to reflect. One of the things that you were talking about is how we alter based on the response. I call this the art of the practice. We assess, we recommend, and we track. So art is an acronym, and that tracking leads us to further assessment, further recommendation, and further tracking. And as you said, it's just not how we typically work in medicine these days. We have the X for the Y. We have the protocol instead of realizing that it's an evolving situation. The other thing you were talking about was that constitution or vital force. And my memory with Isamu was that it was almost like the tree, in addition to its immune properties and its pain management and all the things it was doing physiologically, was almost like regrounding the soul in the soil when somebody's going through so much treatment and there's such a internal battle, as much as I don't want to look at it like that, that the mistletoe was helping to, like I said, reground him, bring him back into this body that he was in. And part of that matching was about that as well. But again, I'm going back over 20 years and I have no clue if my understanding was correct back in those days. Andrea, your connection to this is really moving to me because it's like this medicine still with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite your husband no longer being with you, it, there's some sort of memory residue of this trailed forward into your life. It imparted itself on your son's education and even to influence in some way, likely what you do for a living now. Yes, so, for sure. Coming back full circle, the anthroposophical physicians believe that cancer is the ultimate disconnect. So when you describe that, it's like it rerouted him, it reconnected him. It's a disconnect of self. It's a disconnect from other. It's a disconnect from spirit. It's a disconnect from cell to cell communication. And it's also a loss of rhythm. So Rudolf Steiner and others experts in anthroposophical medicine and specifically to the mistletoe medicine itself discusses that what mistletoe is most profoundly doing is restoring the rhythm. 
And so that could be at the circadian level, the hormonal level, the metabolic level, the immune level, and in all of those different, I call it my terrain 10, you call it your functional nutrition matrix. They're very similar, you know, sides to the coin here of how it imparts its wisdom there. And it basically meets the patient where they are and helps reconnect, restore the rhythm of the body and being. And it, one of the biggest quote unquote side effects of this medication that we hear over and over again, and in fact have had hundreds of studies done is its impact on the quality of life of the individual. And the most profound piece about this medicine is we often think of alternative or integrative medicine as being not good friends, or you can't play in the same sandbox as standard of care. And what I want your listeners to understand is that this therapy is best suited with standard of care. It is meant to be playing well with others, whether it's from standard of care or integrative or alternative medicine, it likes to partner with the other therapies. So with chemo and radiation, it helps prevent all of these pancytopenias and the fatigue that goes along with those. It also helps with the organs of elimination and the detoxification process because you're taking it in sub-Q, IV, intratumoral. It also bypasses a lot of the liver detox pathways. So it's virtually has no contraindications for any of the pharmaceuticals we use out there, which is really elegant because sometimes we really have to you know, kind of torture ourselves with, are we causing more problems than not here therapy like this? And I just find that it so rounds out someone's standard of care or even alternative therapy that can really change their outcomes and improve. If nothing else, if we can't save the patient at the end of the day, we can certainly have an impact on their quality of life as they're taking their last breaths. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you about contraindications and are there literally none? So there there are, you know, there's obviously people can have just like anything else. You can have those variables, those, those outliers that have strange reactions, but the adverse events are, so a lot of people are familiar with using high dose IV vitamin C in the cancer world. There are far more adverse events with high dose vitamin C than there are with mistletoe, just as an example. I've not personally seen it clinically to be an issue. One thing I was taught is that we don't want to use the Iscador form for closed body lesions. So brain, lung, prostate, where you have space occupying lesions, because it does tend to swell the tumors first. So we tend to stick with the lower viscotoxin content host tree manufacturers like Helixor and Viscosan for things like lung, brain, and prostate cancer, so that even though all of the tumors can potentially swell a little bit when you first initiate this type of an immune therapy, it won't expand as rapidly as it can on the Iscador form. So we tend to use a gentler approach with it. Now, those who have been very well trained in Iscador, which the anthroposophical doctors, most of them trained in Europe, they know what to watch for and how to deal with this. But if you're going to a doctor who's relatively new at using mistletoe in their practice, they're going to stick with more low-hanging fruit and you know less worrisome approaches. But overall, there really are no contraindications. And I should say one more time, there is one other place where you just want to use caution is you don't want to give somebody this injection if they have a fever. You can use it once the fever subsides, not a problem at all, because the treatment actually causes a bit of a fever. So we don't want to confuse matters. We want to make sure we are seeing what is a mistletoe response and what is a neutropenic fever or an illness response, and we don't want to muddy those waters. 
Interesting. And is that fever that is in response to the mistletoe injection part of its immune activation? Yes, 100%. It stimulates several cytokines. It stimulates natural killer cells, T-cell, dendritic cells. It is an absolute desired effect. You want to have a little local redness reaction, raised lesion where you do the injections, typically around the umbilicus, rotating sites up to three times a week. You don't give another injection until that previous response has subsided or the fever has subsided. And that's what we're desiring. We're looking at seeing a little bump in their eosinophils. We're looking at seeing them feeling a little achy or fluey. We're looking at a little rise in their temperature or a little redness or itching at the site of the injection. Normally in medicine, we freak out at things like that. Right, right. But in this moment, this is exactly what we're looking for. And it's, you know, you can think of mistletoe as one of the earliest immune therapies just coming in on the heels of Coley's toxin, which I would encourage your listeners to go and do some research on if they don't know about it. But it's interesting that today all the rage and all the billions of dollars of research are going into immune therapies. And yet we have one that does not have the side effects and the issues and the cost associated with it, and both just to the physical as well as to the wallet impact. And so I'd love to see this used more as a first resort versus leaning on so heavily some of these sort of wild west, you know, mega immune therapies that at best have a 20% response, you know, in the body. And yet we have another therapy here that's been used consistently for a hundred years that has a beautiful track record and it's still picking up momentum. Yeah. So that leads me to my final question for you. It's such a fascinating topic and you've done such a brilliant job of condensing our understanding. I wasn't quite sure how we were going to get it all in, but when we think about its immunotherapy properties, are there other conditions? You mentioned early on epilepsy, but with all the rise that we're seeing, especially now, but particularly in the last decade of autoimmunity, of co-infections, of difficult to treat chronic immune conditions, is there any research happening that supports the use of mistletoe elsewhere? Absolutely. We're seeing it being used in the field of Lyme. We're seeing it being used in Hashimoto's autoimmune thyroiditis. I have some Russian colleagues that actually inject it right into the thyroid gland. Wow. Especially all those folks that were, you know, had the exposure to Chernobyl and all the thyroid cancers and thyroiditis processes they see there. This has been one of their primary tools. We see it used for sure in a lot of different arenas in autoimmunity. We're seeing it used in the IgA deficiency, IgG deficiency populations, which unfortunately we're seeing more and more of today. We're even seeing its use in folks as almost a prophylactic. I dare to call it a vaccine because there's so much confusion and stigma around that these days, but to use it in high risk populations, such as people who have ATM, Lynch, CHECK2, GATA3, BRCA mutations in their family of origin as a potential of using this as like an annual sort of tune-up to help make your own immune system much more, I call it the three R's, to be able to recognize, respond, and remember. It really does help that so it keeps your own immune system in check over time. So there are definitely implications of it both in research trials today, but then all of us clinically, as physicians who've been using this for a long time, see its uh, value in other areas above and beyond oncology. 
Dr. Nisha, thank you so much. I have chills having this conversation. I don't know if it's because it's bringing me back to that time where I was doing the subcutaneous injections into my husband's abdomen um, and also just the potential of plant medicine in integrative cancer care and integrative health care in general. Thank you for driving this conversation forward. My absolute pleasure. And I hope that you and your listeners have a chance to read. It's just been out for about a month now. Mistletoe and the Emerging Future of Integrative Oncology. It's co-written by myself and six other colleagues. And all of the proceeds are going to clinical trials and mistletoe research and education. So we really want you to become empowered and really get the history and the the know-how of how to bring this therapy into your clinical practice. Brilliant. We will link to that in the show notes happily. And I look forward to continuing our conversation another time. I hope so. Thanks so much, Andrea. Appreciate it. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.